0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The Crown's Game is an old one, older than the Zardom itself. It began long ago, in the age of Rurik, Prince of Novgorod, Russia was still a cluster of tribes, wild and lawless and young. As the country matured over the centuries, so too did the game. But always, always, it retained its untamed fierceness.
1: Before we begin, Evelyn, if I could get you very quickly to just introduce yourself and what you do. Hello, my name is Evelyn Sky, etc., etc.
2: Hi, I'm Evelyn Skye. I'm the author of The Crown's Game and the upcoming sequel, The Crown's State, And it is about two enchanters who are fighting a duel to the death in magical imperial Russia.
0: For the winner of the game, there would be unimaginable power. For the defeated, desolate oblivion. The Crown's Game was not one to lose. Chapter 1. October, 1825. The smell of sugar and yeast welcomed me
1: You're listening to Bookmark. I'm Uma Paganampike Pagan, and this is Authored, a brand new show in which I have these conversations with writers that are built around themes. This season, I'm speaking to them about their firsts, their first literary loves, their first characters, about the first time they found out that they were about to be published. I suppose the first place to start is what is the very first piece of fantasy fiction that you ever read growing up?
2: Oh my gosh, I think it was probably the Narnia series or it might have been Redwall. I cannot place which one was first, but those are two that stick in my mind.
1: It's interesting though, because by today's standards, I'm assuming Lewis would be categorized as YA fiction, wouldn't he?
2: I think that's probably true. But back then, you know, when I was a kid, there wasn't really a YA section, right? Oh, no. maybe, yeah. So I just, I kind of read whatever was thrown at me. And, you know, you can't, you can't deny the, the intrigue of stepping through a wardrobe and Turkish delight and all that, you know, eternal winter and never Christmas, all that.
1: I mean, I, I often debate this and I often struggle with this because there's so many more categorizations these days. And I know when I was growing up, there wasn't a YA section in a bookshop. There was there was barely a kid section. There was you know, kid section meant kids, kids. It meant Dr. Seuss, it meant Roald Dahl, and 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 everything else was just, you know, either science fiction, fantasy, or adult literature.
2: Yeah, you know for me, I actually remember getting my very first library card and I still remember signing it with my really awkward loopy handwriting. Yes. And basically having having the run of the library. And like you said, there weren't really sections, right? Like once you get past um, The picture book sections back then and maybe early chapter books, you could really kind of go anywhere. And I remember, you know, it's all blurring in my memory when I was reading Babysitter's Club and when I somehow crossed over to the section and I was looking at Victor Hugo, you know, so I, I think that teens these days, too, they read very broadly. And so YA, it's more of a marketing category than really an age category.
1: And how did that influence what you decided to write?
2: Yeah, I actually read exactly what I write, except that at that point I wasn't re- I wasn't reading much fantasy, and so I ended up writing the fantasy in a way that I wanted to read it, in that I wasn't reading a lot of high fantasy, and so there weren't a lot of um, magical creatures and, and very long names. It was more what what kind of fantasy would I write if it were for somebody who wasn't used to reading fantasy? Um, but other than that, you know, I, I feel like these stories just cross age groups and um, genres. And it's, just, it's really for everybody. You know, like even if you look at what's popular these days, um, books to movies like The Hunger Games and Harry Potter, it's really everybody's watching that, right? Uh,
1: which brings me to my question that I ask everyone. Did you read Game of Thrones first or did you watch it on TV?
2: Uh, I actually have to admit I have not watched Game of Thrones or no.
1: read
2: the book. I've, oh, I you only must. Recently started, I know, I know. I only recently started watching a few episodes because my boyfriend was watching it and it's like in the later seasons. So I have a little bit of body exposure now, but it's it's actually amusing that people, um, New York Public Library compares my book. They said it was uh, Game of Thrones for the younger set, And I thought, wow, that's really cool. If only I knew what
1: that really meant, but thanks. <laughs> well, I, I think it means intrigue and in politics without all the sex and rapiness. Right. Which is, <laughs> which is good. Which is good. Which is good. It's a great thing. You don't want kids reading that kind of stuff. No. Uh, no, 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 no. No, no. Um no, I grew up I grew up for the most part reading Dragonlance as fantasy Mm -hmm. fiction i think those were the really first pieces of fantasy fiction i picked up by margaret weiss and tracy hickman and and it was crazy because a couple of years ago i had the honor of meeting tracy hickman and i think i was a blubbering mess for about 20 minutes while i was interviewing him that
2: is amazing oh that's amazing
1: the the irony being of course for the longest time i thought he was a woman because i didn't know men were called tracy as well
2: Yes, it's funny because one of my best friends is, is Tracy, and he's also a man. And I also have female friends
1: named Tracy. It's it, it's confusing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, but it's interesting how 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 fantasy kind of just latches onto our imagination in this way. This idea of kings and queens and 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 magic and dragons and sorcerers and all of that stuff. What what do you think that appeal is as a child? There was the science fiction part that got me—the the bit that wanted to go exploring into outer space—but at the same time, there was the there were these dragons and monsters that got me in the same way. It wasn't an either or situation.
2: I think with fantasy, it is partly an escape, right? I mean, like our day to day lives are full of so much harsh reality, and it's nice to be able to curl into a book and just go some someplace else. And I think that's kind of the beauty of. Fantasy. I mean, of all books, really, but especially when you're talking about opening a portal to another world. Um, so I think that's, that's part of the big appeal. And then the flip side, which is kind of the opposite of what I've just said, is that it's still somewhat reality-based and that there are analogies to real life. And sometimes I think seeing it in a fantastical setting makes uh, things that we see in our lives a little bit easier to understand because it's, it's digested or presented in a different way.
0: The smell of sugar and yeast welcomed Vika, even before she stepped into the pumpkin shaped shop on the main street of their little town. She resisted the urge to burst into Cinderella Bakery. Her father had labored for 16 years to teach her how to be demure, and she slipped into the shop and took her place quietly at the end of the line of middle aged women. One of them turned to greet her, but shrank away when she saw it was Vika. As people always did. It was as if they suspected that what ran through her veins...
1: So, Evelyn, talk to me about the first character that you wrote for this book.
2: So, for this book, the very first character I wrote was Nikolai. And so, the book right now actually begins with Zika, who is the female enchanter... But the original opening of the book was a, a Nikolai chapter. That deleted scene is actually now available on my website. But it was him as a little boy and and being discovered uh, with his powers out in on the Kazakh set.
1: And, and he's got a very he's got a very cool power as well because because he can't just see through objects; he can actually build bridges, which is which is very cool.
2: Yeah, he's really mechanical. I mean, I think for me it was somewhat aspirational because I don't have very much technical skill. You know, I'm not the kind of person who can take things apart and put them back together again. And so his powers, to me, are, are, are fascinating. Um, and and he's a direct contrast to Zika, whose powers are much more nature-based. She's very elemental. She controls weather and, um, you know, things like that.
1: And, and, and turns things to gold and stuff.
2: Exactly, exactly.
1: Uh, tell me about the first sentence you wrote for this book, because I'm very curious if that is usually the sentence that authors keep.
2: Oh, it's interesting. So I have to remember, so I know the first full chapter of it was Nicolai, but I did also write a prologue. So I guess that's cheating, you know, that the prologue came first. And so the first sentence stays the first sentence and it's, the crowd game is an old one, older than the Zardom itself, and it, it it kind of goes on and has. It's a very short prologue, and it's just kind of sets the tone that this is a very old, old competition that's about a thousand years old in Russia. And yes, that actually stayed, because for me, I know a lot of writers come up with the concept first or the characters first or the outline. For me, very often what happens is I hear the first sentence of a book. And that's how it begins. And I write that down and everything kind of goes from there. So very happily, this one stayed.
1: Is that first sentence usually the hook that you need to keep going?
2: Um, it is for the story motivation, but I don't, I think in general, the first sentence doesn't stay. It's just, it's the impetus to get things started and then it gets finessed. So this was a bit of a unique situation that, because I have lots of other manuscripts that aren't published, but this is one of the few that actually stayed exactly in the first sentence form.
1: What was the first manuscript that got rejected?
2: Oh, so the first manuscript that got rejected is it was a time travel piece and it actually had Imperial Russia for half the time. There was a long-lost Imperial princess and she had somehow fallen through a time travel arch dimension thing. It was very unclear. It was not a very good manuscript. Um, And she ended up growing up in modern-day California. And so it's the story of a, a boy who is from early 19th century Russia. You can tell that I like that time period. And he find, discovers this, um, this pathway and he um, finds this girl and he figures out that she's the missing princess.
1: Evelyn, I'd watched that television series in a heartbeat.
2: <laughs> hey, well, you know, tell my publisher, maybe we'll write that one next.
1: Oh, so why Russia? What was the first piece of Russian fiction that you read or nonfiction that that had you so fascinated with the place and the era and all of that?
2: It was my last year of high school. I was in my advanced placement literature class, and our teacher had us read Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And there was something about the dark, brooding Russian soul that really came through in that story that really captured me that was really a contrast to all the British literature that I've been reading, because up until that point, it was uh, Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters, um, and so, yeah, so that was really, really interesting and that really touched me in, and then I kind of fell in love with it, especially when I was 18 and, you know, thinking that I had, you know, dark, a dark side of me, which if you see me now, I'm very smiley, just, uh, you know, it's funny. But then I went to college and I decided that I didn't want to be like everybody else who, when they were fulfilling their foreign language requirement, everyone was taking French so I decided to take Russian, and the, uh, the professors were amazing, and the classes were just amazing, and I got sucked in, and I fell even more in love with, with the place and the literature and the history.
1: Okay, Evelyn, tell me about the first story you ever wrote.
2: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so in first grade, I wrote a story called The Golden Egg, I have that still. It's just a very, very short thing, and it's about I think a girl who discovered a golden egg in her backyard, and she opened it up, and there's something inside. Gosh, now, now I have to go look at. it. I don't even know what happens in the end. This is a cliffhanger.
1: And, and and well done on your parents for keeping it.
2: <laughs> I know. I'm very pleased with them.
1: So I have this thing when I read books and novels, mostly fiction, even comic books. I have this tendency to to fall in love with characters and, and not just in a, I think this character a really fascinating way, but kind of often fall head over heels in love with characters. Do you have that problem? And if so, do you remember the first character you kind of fell in love with?
2: Oh my gosh. I fell in love with Henry from a farewell to arms.
1: Henry's oh wow. A to arms.
2: Yes. So that was my first book crush. But I know what you mean about falling in love with characters.
1: Tell me more. What was it about Henry? And how old were you?
2: I was 11. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it, was, it wasn't It was necessarily just Henry. I think now that I look back and analyze all the kinds of books that I like, there's always a bittersweet or impossible romance. And so I feel like the relationship between Henry and Catherine, um, I don't want to spoil the book, but that's. Kind of exactly what what happened there, right? That's the summary of their relationships. It was it was difficult. It was romantic, and then it was also impossible.
1: And there's something about there's something about romantic impossible relationships, I suppose.
2: Yes, they're perfect for books, not for real life, but they're absolutely perfect for books and movies.
1: Uh, also, also, Evelyn, farewell to arms was 1929. Spoil the book, it's fine. If people haven't read it by now.
0: <laughs> You know, no, no, we no, don't no, have no, to give to them a
1: spoiler it. alert. Oh, I mean, <laughs> if, it's, if it's for your book, if it's for the Crown's game, sure, don't spoil it. But Hemingway, I think we can.
2: I think we can spoil Hemingway. Oh my goodness! Oh my! I'm going to tell you, and you can you can cut this out later if you want to protect your listeners' poor poor ears. That Henry and Catherine they fall madly in love, and then Catherine dies. What?
1: No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's it.
1: There's no sequel. No, I He's know. Gone. you know. But back in the day, I'm telling you, Hemingway didn't think about writing a trilogy. I
2: know. Imagine, imagine what would, what the second and third books would
1: have been like. That <laughs> would have been hilarious. Do you Do you remember that? Being said, do you remember the first book that you ever fell in love with that you kind of dragged around with you wherever you went? Mm,
2: gosh, I mean. That is one of the books that sticks in my mind. Actually, A Farewell to Arms. Like that's the first time I fell so madly, deeply in love with a book. Um, another one is The Count of Monte Cristo. I loved that book too. Oh,
1: that's an incredible book. But but also, can I just say A Farewell to Arms is incredibly depressing for an eleven-year-old.
2: It really is. And you see, I think there there is something dark about me. And this, it was absolutely predictable. That I would fall in love with. Thus
1: your fascination with Russia.
2: Yeah, exactly. You see, you've unearthed it. Now we know.
1: I've always been that way. Uh, It's interesting. When I'm reading reading things like Hemingway and when I'm reading things that people widely consider to be the classics, um, I often have to put on that hat of, hey, Uma, you're reading a classic. Be aware of it because everyone says this is great. And I don't know if you have to do that as well, because I often fear that I may not like it or may not think it's great. And then I have this huge literary debate in my head as to why I think it isn't and everyone else thinks it is. And it sets me down this really slippery slope.
2: I think if you go on any, you know, retail site like or, or book review site and you see people's varying reviews, it makes you feel a little bit better if you didn't like Moby Dick, you know?
1: I don't think anyone's actually finished Moby Dick, ever.
2: (laughs) It's about the same as War and Peace, right? Like, Have you heard the saying that you skip the war chapters and you read the peace chapters, (laughs) or you you read every other chapter? So, um, yeah, it's kind of a similar thing. But I think as a writer, what has helped me a lot is knowing that there are books out there that I love and my friends whose opinions I absolutely respect, but they do not love the book, or vice versa. And it really is that there are different books for different people. And so as an author, that helps me in that I know I can't write a book for everybody, right? So um, on the flip side, as a reader, it uh, makes it easier to say, that's okay if I didn't like a book. Although I do love books, so.
1: (laughs) Do you remember the first piece of negative criticism you ever received for Crown's Game?
2: Oh my gosh, you know, I've been really good about avoiding reviews just because I've had friends um, who had their books published ahead of me, and I know how devastating it can be. For me, it's the first review that came in that I saw that kind of like, you know, stabbed me a little bit, um, involved people complaining about the love triangle, which I had to kind of laugh, try to laugh off, right? Because the jacket copy of the book tells you that there's a love triangle, so i uh, it's almost like, well, if you, if you don't like love triangles, then you're probably not going to like this book because there is a love triangle. And then I have other readers who blog about it, and they say they love the love, love triangle. And then there are other readers who blog and say there is no love triangle. And then others who say that there's a love pentagon. And so really, I think it's up for debate. <laughs> it,
1: it is up for debate, but also... I think when it comes to reviews as well, there's an interesting disconnect that you have to develop as an author. And I know a lot of my friends who are authors, some of them enjoy reading it, good and bad. And that disconnect doesn't necessarily affect the way they write. And yet I have others who get incredibly affected by it because especially in this age of the internet, a lot of these reviews aren't necessarily about the book or the writing. They tend to be from an incredibly personal space. Right. And I think that's, I think it's important to be able to kind of weed out the trolls, if you will.
2: Right. And I think it's, and you have to assess your own personality, right? But I think in general for me, like I just try to stay away from the reviews. And reviews, I my opinion is that reviews are for readers. And so it is. they are ways for people to alert other readers who might be like them, whether or not they would like a book or not. And so it goes back to the book, books are not written and movies and TV shows and everything are not for everybody, they are for a specific audience. And so, if you have someone whose opinion you trust and you know you have similar taste, and they like the book, then you'll you might like it too. And if they don't, then you might not like it. And and that's okay. And so, for me as an author, um, you know, I I try not to read them just because I don't. They're not really for me, and um, and I don't want them to unduly influence the way I'm writing and where I think the story needs to go, what the characters are supposed to be doing, uh, etc.
1: That was Evelyn Skye. You can find The Crown's Game at all good bookstores. You've been listening to Awesome. This is Bookmark on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.